This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they've faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking to Dennis Danaher. Dennis is a director at Danaher Moulton, a law firm specialising in commercial law, estates, property and litigation matters. In today's episode, you'll hear about the importance of having a shareholder agreement set in place from the beginning. You'll learn about the various sections of agreements, what to do when going into business with friends or family, and how shareholder agreements work with multiple shareholders. From partnership disputes to shareholders being voted out of business, you'll leave this episode knowing just how important it is to have an agreement. Let's jump in. Hi, Dennis. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Savan. You can call me Tunesy. I know you like to call me Tunesy. <laughs> no so, worries, Dennis, tell us a little bit about your personal professional background and your legal practice, Danaher Moulton. All right. So, Savan, I've been a lawyer for 20 years. I started Danaher Moulton 11 years ago and three years ago or thereabouts, I entered into a partnership with Stephen Moulton. So, this topic of shareholder agreements is very close to my heart. At Danaher Moulton, we essentially focus on business, property and estate planning. Our focus is to make it easy for clients. You know, we know that people don't really like going to see lawyers, so we want to be about making that engagement as seamless as possible. Certainly that's my aim. And the other thing is just keeping things simple. You know, lawyers are often accused of not explaining things easily or well. I mean, we we know that people should be focusing on their business and that's where their attention should be. They want us to help them make sense of some difficult issues. I know that you've helped us out with uh, a lot of stuff over the years. I'm a big fan of yours. So excited to have you on the show today. (laughs) There are many businesses that are run with multiple owners, as we know. In most cases, you know, these businesses are smooth sailing. However, we do know that we don't live in a perfect world. And in our experience, when co-owners disagree and there are issues at the ownership level, there are generally no agreements in place. And they come to us and it's like, oh, what do we do here? My partner's causing me problems or vice versa. And not effectively and efficiently resolving these disputes. So, We generally refer them to you and obviously before the issues arise around setting up agreements. So I wanted to talk about that, shareholder agreements specifically and that type of stuff. So before we get deep into the topic, can you tell us a story of a client or someone that you've been involved in where not having an agreement has resulted in an outcome which was not favourable for the business and for the owners? Well, there's not just one example, Savan, there's plenty. What essentially starts out is people think that they're saving money by not getting them. They go into business with their mates, oh, you know, we've never had an argument, et cetera, et cetera, only to find that it may not be them that's having the fight, but possibly they've got their spouses who are perhaps directing them in, in different ways. And particularly where people have different spending habits, that's where you can see the frustration in the shareholders. Because what happens is one party says, no, let's leave the money in the business. The other guy's saying, no, let's rip it out because I've got to pay a mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. 
and there's a difference in expectations. I reckon I've been involved just in the last year or two with maybe 10 or 15 disputes. And essentially, if there's no agreement, it becomes a negotiation between the lawyers, very costly. And often it depends on the type of lawyer involved. You can get some very aggressive lawyers who want to run the matters forever and a day, which then pushes the costs up and effectively destroys a relationship between these guys. It's one thing for a relationship to come to an end, but if you get the wrong people involved and if you don't have an agreement, you can destroy relationships. Dennis, we, we referred to the agreements as shareholder agreements before, but obviously yeah. there's partnership agreements, unit holders agreements. Is yeah. that just a matter of how the business is structured? It is. It is. So shareholder agreements are for companies. You can equally have partnership agreements. So if you and I are in business as partners, we would have a partnership agreement. If the business was structured through a unit trust, then it would be a unit holders agreement. And if we have, say, a partnership of discretionary trusts, again, it would revert to a partnership agreement. So on the whole, they're referred to as management agreements, agreements that govern your business relationship. Why is it important to have these agreements? I think it's really important to start with an agreement because it really makes it clear what the expectations of the parties are. Where I tend to see problems, as I said, is where the parties don't have a clear expectation as to who's going to do what and where there might be different spending habits, that's where the trouble comes. And look, certainly I've seen the back end of it where people don't have an agreement. What effectively happens is that the lawyers get involved, costs run out, and it not only puts a huge toll on the people but puts a huge toll on the business. So regardless of who's staying in the business and who's exiting the business or whether you each take your respective clients and leave the business – At the end of the day, it causes a massive financial hit on all the parties. In terms of the concepts that are in the management agreement, what are some of the high-level things that are covered in this management agreement? Look, it essentially governs the management of the business. So at one level, it deals with, of course, if there's a dispute. What happens if there is a dispute? Does one person have to leave the business? What's the buyout terms? Who determines what the market value is? And the market value can be determined in a number of different ways. You know, it might be a a multiple of EBITDA. It might be the value of the assets plus EBITDA. It might be what the accountant says the value is. And the parties can have an agreed value. So it sets out the exit from the business, but it also sets out the profit distribution. You know, do, do profits get pulled out monthly, quarterly, annually? It can also set out what the wages of the directors are. If one person's sort of actively working in the business, but one of the shareholders is a passive investor, what does the person working in the business get paid? And then how does their salary get readjusted? Most importantly, it sets out how decisions are made. And that's really, really important when there's multiple party shareholder agreements. So if you've got three parties in a shareholders agreement and two of the parties own 80%, can they make all the decisions relating to the business? Because most of uh, your listeners may know that generally within a company, if you have 75% control, then you can essentially control the business. And that's really important because a whole bunch of decisions can be made that affect the minority shareholder. So yeah, certainly the ability to make decisions is very, very important. And then also another key factor is when does a person get to become a director? 
So on a standard 50-50 shareholder agreement, of course, you'd expect both parties to be directors. But when you've got a shareholders agreement with multiple parties, when do the junior members get to become directors? Is it when they own 20%, 10%? And that's where the shareholder agreement is really important. And I'm assuming it's great to have these right at the start. Should you have an agreement before you start operating or do you advise that it's a rolling document for a little while and and gets executed after? Look, that's a really good question, Tunesy. I think it depends on the amount of money involved. And what I mean by that is to say when these guys start out, of course, costs are always a factor. I wouldn't encourage people who are in a startup business to go and get these documents from day one unless there was a a high expectation that the business was going to spin out a lot of money from day one. If within 12 months are operating, you can see that the business is going to work, the relationship's going to work, there's not a huge amount of money at risk, then you might be able to get away with not having one. But certainly within 12 months of operation, you would look to get at least a partnership agreement or a management agreement. If anything else, all it does is help the parties understand what the expectations are of each of the parties. Because again, where I see the problem is, is people have totally different expectations as to who's going to do what. That's where the issues arise. And the funny thing is generally these conversations have probably already been had yeah. in, in the startup phase and, and whatnot. Yep. So all we're saying is, is just put down what you've probably already agreed on. Look, I, I agree. And, you know, for the sake of, you know, maybe two or three grand, it's it's the old adage, a stitch in time saves nine. You spend the two or three grand at the start of your arrangement, it can certainly save a significant amount of money on the back end. Because if you don't have an agreement and you get aggressive lawyers involved, you know, two or three grand is going to sound like pittance compared to the amount of money you're going to spend and also the amount of stress and time wasted. And in terms of a client that approaches you, what information do owners need to have prepared before they seek advice of lawyers in the preparation of the agreement? If we're approached to do a shareholders agreement, we would normally send out a questionnaire. And that's really important because it helps people understand what they need to consider. It's like going to a doctor and saying, oh, doctor, I need you to diagnose me. But if you don't have a basic understanding of what the doctor wants, then it's difficult to do that. So we like to give the clients a a pretty good understanding of the types of things that they should be thinking about in a shareholders agreement. Things like, should you be a director? How are decisions going to be made? And we give sort of several options there. So it actually, it encourages the conversation. So to answer your question, it's not like you've got to do a heap of work before getting a shareholders agreement. When we work with you, we want to make the process easy for the clients. Yeah, it sounds like the process is easier for that if you're prompting a little yes, bit of question yeah, answer yep, yep. process. That's awesome. I want to dive a little deep into the different sections of these agreements. I've been involved in obviously having one myself mm. with my partners and and being involved in the process when we've referred clients to yourself. Yep. So if one of the shareholders wanted to leave, how do these agreements generally work to deal with that matter? There's generally a clause called an option clause in the agreement that essentially says if one of the partners wishes to leave, then the other partners have the right to buy that person's share. And the agreement would set out the mechanism for determining the price. But it's also really important there to work out what the client departing wants to achieve. So for example, if one day, Savan, you wanted to leave, you know, it'd be important for you going forward that you would keep your clients. So you wouldn't want a restraint of trade clause, which normally accompanies these buyouts. You know, normally it's a buyout occurs of your business partner's interest 
and money is exchanged and then that person is then locked out from going into a similar business with the same clients for a period of time. So it's fundamental to understand what the parties want to achieve in exiting an agreement. Some people are retiring and they say, look, just pay me the money and I'm going to move to Queensland where it's warmer. Others say, no, look, I really want to keep my clients. So that's relevant in working out what the outcome is for them. But generally the agreements say that the departing person gets paid a sum of money, whatever it is. And what happens if one of the business partners commits a crime or does something really bad? How how does that get handled in the agreement or is it even covered? Yeah, look, it is. And (laughs) I think one of the best examples I've got, of a situation like that is a couple of pharmacists who we know and one of the pharmacists had pinched a substantial sum of money, let's say six zeros. He'd pinched that amount of money from the business. They didn't have an agreement. But normally in that sort of situation, I mean, apart from being criminal, in that sort of situation, there was a fundamental breach of trust. And even though there wasn't an agreement, the buyout occurred on the basis of you put the money back in or police get involved and the situation gets nasty. Can you actually put an agreement in place that says if a partner commits a crime, they get a lower value to mark a value, they're they're forced to leave? Or is there sort of mechanisms that says, look, if you do something fundamentally wrong, there is no wiggle room, no negotiation, you're a bad lever and – out you go. Yeah. That's true. And and normally those bad lever provisions are around about being convicted of a criminal offence, certainly fraud. If you're in a professional job and you lose the ability to practice, so for example, myself or you, you know, if I lost my right to practice as a lawyer, that would be a trigger for the buy out of my share. Same for you as an accountant. The other bad lever clauses are if, if you become insolvent, that's one. Often we've seen clauses in agreements where people get divorced or they're going through a matrimonial, that that might might be a trigger for a buyout. As to the reduced amount that would apply, I've seen buyout clauses where the person gets nothing if they're a bad lever. I've seen that amount be 10%, 50%, 90%. One comment to make there, Savan, is that if in the buyout, the reduction is significant. So if you did reduce it down to 10%, arguably that could be seen as a penalty and then not enforced. So you've got to be very careful about these things in drafting these shareholder agreements because, of course, if push comes to shove and there is a dispute, even if you've got a shareholder's agreement or not, you could end up in the courts. Yeah, and we want to avoid that. We want to avoid that for sure. And again, we talked about decision-making earlier. In the agreement, do you stipulate how every decision is to be made or the process of only the important ones? I think that there are essentially three types of decisions. The day-to-day management of the business where, you know, you're paying employee salaries, etc. Then you've got the more substantive decisions where, you know, you might employ a member of your family where the spending might exceed 50 grand, where you're entering into contracts greater than 50 grand. And then you've got the really important decisions, which are the unanimous decisions. You know, are you going to sell the business? Are you going to buy another business? And generally the shareholder agreement would set out those three types of decisions. You don't have to be fully prescriptive, but I think it helps to have guidance as to which decisions need to be made by everyone, which decisions require, say, 75% of the shareholders, and which decisions are the day-to-day decisions. You've answered a couple of my other questions, but I'm going to ask them (laughs) anyway. Does the agreement generally cover salaries of the owners? 
where the contribution of the owners is going to be different, then I think it's always best to cover it in the agreement. And, you know, we see that a bit. So you might have an angel investor, someone who's a passive investor, you know, they're, they're just looking for a return on their investment. It's very good then that the, the active member's salary should be dealt with. Where each of the partners are putting in the same amount of what we call sweat equity, then maybe not so much. But of course, there's an overlay here, which is the payroll tax. From my point of view, I mean, in my respective business, I think we employ something like 30 or 40 people. If I was to add more salaries, if I was to take a salary, that would only add to my payroll tax liability. So there's a few factors to take into account. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule there as to whether you should or you shouldn't. And what happens if a partner wants to sell his or her shares to someone else? Can the other partners stop this from happening? If someone says, Savan, I'm going to give you 10 times the market value for your shares yep. and I really want to sell it to that person, is there generally a clause for that kind of stuff? There is. There is. And in an agreement, normally it's the case that you've got to first offer it to your continuing business partners. Because of course, if, if you could just offer it to Joe Blow, you know, business relationships are based on trust. It wouldn't work having that. In my 20 years of practice, I don't think I've seen a situation where you could just offer it to Joe Blow without first offering it to your business partners. And let's talk about some of the positives. Can you tell us a little bit of a case scenario or a story where actually having an agreement played a pivotal role in resolving a dispute? Yeah. Look, we had a really good one there within the last sort of six months. We had a a fellow who was promised the earth to bring his business into another business and he was given both equity and a directorship role. And then what happened was after about six or eight months, the other business partner fell out of love with my client and then tried to screw him. And luckily for our client, there was an agreement in place and we were talking about a bit of money. So the other party started off negotiating, saying to our client that they pay him at a hundred grand. And because there was an agreement and it had, you know, fairly strong clauses in there, we managed to get I think just shy of a million bucks for our client. Wow, low ball offer there. Yeah, <laughs> it was. But that's how these things. I mean, one of the yeah. one of the key benefits of a shareholders agreement is it changes the leveraging to resolve a dispute. So yes, you've still got to go through the process, but if you don't have an agreement, it's just just an argument as to legal principles. If you've got an agreement, it can actually change the leveraging to resolve the dispute. You might still have the dispute, but it will resolve a lot quicker. And which means less money. Most shareholders, and sometimes they're not, but most shareholders are also potentially employees of the business. Can these agreements override the rights of the employee or the owner under the Fair Work Act? Generally, no. But that raises a really good point, Savan. I, as an example of where the client should have had an employment agreement, we had a client buy another business, bring it into theirs. And what happened was they had a basic shareholders agreement. Three years later, the business that they bought exited and they didn't have an employment agreement and they didn't have any restraints of trade. So three years after they paid a million bucks of this business, the party exited the business, took all these old clients back, left all this debt in the business and the business couldn't do anything about it because they didn't have an employment contract. Again, we like to see employment contracts. It just reaffirms the restraints. Are there mechanisms designed where you've got lots of parties, maybe six, seven different shareholders, and yep. one person's just just an odd bloke and does it doesn't fit within the group? Is there a mechanism in an agreement that's 
can allow other mm. parties to exit the one particular gentleman or lady? Really good question, really good question. Recently we reviewed a shareholders agreement where there wasn't such a clause and that was a professional services firm and essentially what had happened was one of the partners had, had taken his finger off the pulse, life had got in the way, I think he'd had some sort of marital troubles and wasn't putting the same amount of time into the business as the other guys. The way the agreement was drafted was that that wasn't an ability to buy them out. We've actually changed that agreement now where there are key performance indicators. So if you don't meet your KPIs, then you know that can be a trigger for a buyout. And then you can also set up what the buyout price is going to be, when the buyout price has to be paid as well. So instead of paying out a million bucks within 30 days, some of these agreements are drafted so you can pay out the million bucks over three years with interest being payable, that type of thing. And when it comes to voting, we talked a little bit about voting. Um, you mentioned 75%. Obviously, there are votes based on number of people and then and then there are votes based on the percentage you own. Can you sort of describe when one might be used versus another or is it interchangeable? How do you manage that in agreements? Yeah, look, good question. You could have, say, three parties in an agreement. Two of the parties own, say, 40% and the other person owns 20%, but they're all directors. So if your shareholder agreement said that all decisions were made at the director level and they only needed two out of the three, then, of course, that can be a problem. But that is a really key issue that has to be dealt with. Not so much on the two-party shareholder agreements because they're 50-50 owners, but where you get more than three or four directors involved and where the ownership's not equal, you can have a position where someone who owns 10% ends up making a lot of the decisions. And so the other business owners don't want to be caught by that. That's where, uh, again, we as lawyers would be quite strong in giving advice around how the decisions should be made. Should they be made at the director level or at the shareholder level? I wanted to ask you a couple of questions around the common things that you see that cause disputes. You mentioned a few times the spending habits and that being sort of a root cause of these issues. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and hopefully our listeners can not get into those um, issues, hopefully. Well, for me, I think the key is to make sure that the parties have the same attitude and values. You know, people go into business in a whole number of different ways. You can have two guys coming together or two people who have been in business for a long time in their own separate business come together and then it's a real marriage of businesses. Equally, what I see more often is the older people, male or female, they're exiting the business and they're looking to bring a junior in. And as I said before, the key thing is that the two business partners might get along really well but their respective spouse are in the background saying, hey, listen, I need more money. And particularly where it is a problem is where people have got different spending habits. If someone's got a champagne taste on a beer income and the other party is a spendthrift, that causes problems because one person's wanting to leave money in the business, the other person's wanting to take it out. I think the key is for both parties, you're never going to get a situation where both parties are exactly the same, but so long as their core values are the same and the core values in what they want to do with the business. And that's where a shareholder agreement helps because it helps sort of the parties set out how they're going to make decisions, what the mechanism is, but then start directing their attention to the business. You know, where's the business going to be in three years? Where is the business going to be in five years, in 10 years? How are each of the parties expecting to leave the business? You know, is it retirement? Is it, oh, you know, if we make enough cash, I'm going to, I'm going to cash out in five years. Having a shareholders agreement promotes those discussions, which then hopefully avoids those bigger problems. 
I really like that. I think for the sake of potentially two to three grand, having that questionnaire prompting yeah. these discussions yeah. is a really, really good mechanism to bring out some of those things. Because generally when you get together, it's, you know, the roses are smelling great yeah. and the sun's shining, but you may not ask the tough questions as in yeah. how much money do you need to live or when do you yeah. want to exit? And I guess this process does assist with that. I just wanted to just finally ask one more question around the price. So you said two to three grand, that sounds quite an entry level. I mean, without, you know, holding to account, yeah. what sort of should a business owner, small, medium and or large, expect to spend to get yeah. a good outcome in an agreement? Well, we're doing, at the other end of the scale at the moment, we're doing a shareholders agreement, which is uh, going to cost pro- approximately 30 grand. And that's where there's four businesses, 10 different partners. There's a lot of different issues around taking cash. And of course, you know, pe- people can own other assets as well with their business partners. So they might own the factory through their self-managed super fund. How is that going to be dealt with? So look, generally, Entry level, you're right, two to three grand. If you've got multiple business partners, three or more, then you might range from, say, four to six, four to eight. And if you've got a lot of complicating factors, particularly where the business is on a real growth trend, where, you know, the business one year is worth, say, 20 million, the next year due to growth, it's worth 50 million. There's a lot more issues coming in. You're you're trading in different jurisdictions. It's not just Australia, it's international. That's where the cost can go up. But, But a good lawyer should be able to give you a very clear quote on that as opposed to, oh, listen, let's just see how we go. And it's, uh, you know, three months later you get a bill for sort of 40 grand. So, Yeah, and no one wants surprises, so that's good advice. Dennis, obviously sometimes business owners pass away and sometimes it could be, you know, something that's not, you know, known and it could be surprise. Yeah, yep. But what, what happens when a partner dies? Well, of course, when someone passes away like that, it's a, it's a it's a big shock. Sometimes it's known a person's got a diagnosis of cancer. Sometimes they're, you know, they're killed in a car accident. I've seen both. Generally what happens is a shareholder agreement deals with a voluntary departure of someone from the business. You know, you, 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 you're not happy with your business partner and you say, well, listen, I'm going. Where an involuntary departure happens, which is essentially where someone passes away or they suffer incapacity, you know, someone's knocked off their motorbike and, you know, they're in a coma, then it is possible to get an insurance called buy-sell insurance. And essentially what happens there is that the insurance then covers the buyout price for the partner that's exiting. So, Savannah and I are in business. My share of the business is worth 500 grand. Savannah's share of the business is worth 500 grand. I insure my half of the business for 500. Savannah does his. And if heaven forbid I pass away, then my insurance gets paid to my family. And there's an agreement called a buy sell agreement, which essentially allows Savannah to take my interest in the business for free, not paying any more money. Which is the reason you have that $500,000 policy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And if you've got the insurance without the agreement or if you've got the agreement without the insurance, they don't work. They really need to work hand in glove together for them to work. I want to thank you so much. I've learned a lot today and around shareholder agreements and and so on. So thank you, Dennis. Thanks, Cheesy. Always good to be with you. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. 
and we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing, and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.